So I'd like to begin the talk this evening with a quote from the Buddha. <coughs> there is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, of non-possession, and of non and of non-clinging. It is a total end of death and decay, and this is why I call it nibbana. So this evening I'd like to reflect upon two words, two teachings that you come across with some frequency in the early texts. One is the teaching of homelessness and the other is the teaching of homecoming. Now, throughout his teaching life, the the Buddha encouraged, encouraged women and men to embrace the freedom of homelessness was often referred to as going forth, going forth from a life in the world to and going forth in what the Buddha described as a noble life uh, or a noble search. For people, women and men, to discover for themselves a life unbound, a life of dignity, nobility. And he offered many different doorways, understanding that life unbound through mindfulness, through the Brahma-viharas of kindness, of compassion, of joyfulness, of equanimity. Understanding that life unbound through really deeply seeing the emptiness of selfing. And in, times, in the time of the Buddha, this going forth meant for many leaving behind them their families, their identities, their, their safety, and entering into an ordained life. It was really somewhat volunteering to be no one. It was a kind of existential insecurity. Yet, it's also clear that the Buddha did not just teach monastics. He taught people like us, lay people very embedded, quite willingly, happily embedded, in their families, in their communities, in their societies. And here too, he taught the same message of freedom and awakening. The encouragement again to step out (coughs) and to go forth from our, often from our psychological and emotional homes of familiarity. Encourage us to step out of our homes of habits, of self-views, of illusory safety. And the Buddha Buddha taught awakening for all, without exception, regardless of class, of background, of ethnicity, of gender. And awakening, as the Buddha speaks of it, is really not about a state really not about an experience, not about a place, but about an understanding, an understanding that can quite radically change our way of seeing and being in the world, with each other, with ourselves. Nibbana, as the Buddha spoke about, it was a transcendence, but not a transcendence of the world, but a transcendence of distress. Nibbana, as the Buddha spoke about, it was not an extinction or an annihilation of life, but an extinction of greed and hatred and delusion. And the Buddha often spoke about awakening as a release, a release from confusion, from patterns of distress-making, from reactivity and struggle, but it's also about a release into a release into our capacity really to live as flourishing, caring, relational, creative human beings. Often the Buddha would describe awakening as disentangling or unbinding, a freedom from the stories constructed from fear and from self-view and from hatred and from anxiety a freedom into a way of being without construction. And sometimes he would speak of this 
as the unshakable liberation of the heart. It's a wonderful piece from one of the discourses where the Buddha says, This noble life does not have gain, honor, and renown as its benefit or its goal, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit or goal, or the attainment of concentration as its benefit or its goal. But it is this unshakable deliverance of the heart that is the goal of this noble life, its heartward and its end. And then there's a very uh, abiding central message that I hear in the, in the Buddhist teaching, and perhaps you have heard it too. It's, it's kind of simple. You know, despite all the complexity, it's kind of simple. Basically, the Buddha says, you know, give up clinging, give up hating, give up craving, give up selfing, be free. (laughs) That's basically it. You know, you could just stop the talk here. You know, there's not much else to say. However, I will go on. But when we hear that, it's remarkably simple, but we really, really, when we start to explore that inward, we don't, don't we just appreciate the size of the cloth and sometimes just shake our head at the seeming impossibility of doing that? There are also, as much as the Buddha speaks about this going forth into homelessness, there are also similes of nibbana that are used that suggest a profound homecoming. The Buddha speaks about arriving on the other shore, speaks about Nibbana as the everlasting, as the supreme safety, speaks of Nibbana as the island, as a refuge. And the suggestion is about arriving not on some foreign land or strange territory, but almost a sort of a returning to and a reclaiming of a very deep peace of stillness, of inner happiness, and a freedom we can trust. And the wonderful genius of the Buddha in my mind is that he always built upon what we, have al- what we already know. Always built upon what we have had tastes of or glimpses of in our life. We have had tastes of peace. We have had tastes of stillness. You know, we have had tastes of inner happiness. And we find ourselves, you know, this is awakens a longing. This is called a, you know, a kusala chanda, a wholesome desire a wholesome longing for awakening, not as something that is fixed and static, but fluid and almost beyond definition. There's a wonderful story about an American tourist, and don't be insulted, please, because this, this story is told by an English person. You know. so, please don't take it personally. You know. It's from a supposedly true incident. So an American tourist visiting Oxford in England approached a tweed-jacketed, bespeckled, professorial type and asked, excuse, I won't do an accent, (laughs) excuse me, but I wonder if you could tell me where exactly is the University of Oxford? Madam, the professorial type responded, the university is not in reality anywhere. The university possesses only metaphysical rather than actual existence. I'll do my English accent. (laughs) The university is composed of separate independent colleges rather than having one campus. Physically does not exist as a fixed place. This is fluidity. 
As we travel this path of awakening, I think one thing it becomes clear to us in our own practice, doesn't it, that you know, only something new can begin or emerge if fixed patterns change. Doesn't that, hasn't that become obvious to you? As fixed patterns change. And one of the patterns, I think, that, that can be very strong in people is, is we try always trying to make things reified. You know, we try to make things fixed so that they can be known, so that they can be identified, so that they can be, you know, compared, so that they can have some sense of personal meaning to us according to our language and our histories. And I think what this path actually asks of us is to really open to a greater sense both of knowing and not knowing. Because knowing is part of mindfulness practice. It's part of sati. It's part of insight meditation to develop our sense of clear knowing. We know we have moments of wonder and moments of joy. We know that at times we struggle, at times we feel confused, and we know that sometimes we just hurt. We know that we, we feel and we act and we think that our body senses and with time changes. We know that we are embedded in cultural and social and familial structures. We know that we are shaping and being shaped by the world moment to moment. We also know that we have longings, we have aspirations, we keep trying to make sense of a world that often seems to make no sense. Sometimes we wonder, we know that we wonder sometimes, how to confront the great challenges of our time. You know, it's interesting when you read the stories of, of, of the society that the Buddha lived in, there are so many parallels in terms of the, the challenges that people faced in those times of political chaos, of injustice, of prejudice. Probably the only thing that didn't really feature so strongly in the time of the Buddha was a climate emergency. And we do at times wonder, you know, with all of our longings, with all of the integrity that we put in place, with all of our aspirations to be happy and to be at peace with ourselves and others, you know, sometimes it's it's just confusing and mystifying, isn't it? Why do we end up unhappy? You know, why do we end up struggling? Why do we end up finding ourselves in fractured relationships. Most of us, you know, and there's, 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 there's struggles within ourselves, you know, there are contradictions within ourselves, even in the midst of those longings. You know, we, basically we like certainty, you know, and we rely upon certainty for safety. You know, many, many, many decades ago when I was first teaching, I co-taught a retreat with a teacher who was a bit of a maverick. Anyway, it decided it was going to try a retreat with no schedule. Oh, we had a schedule, but the yogis didn't have a schedule. You know? so, so, you know, it was completely random, you know? And we just said, just follow the bell, you know? So, you know, the bell would go, it was time to sit. Ten minutes later, the bell would go, it was time to walk, you know? Fifteen minutes later, the bell would go, it was time for lunch, even though it was breakfast, you know? And, uh, and then the bell would go, and it was time for a three-hour sitting, you know? And then the bell would go. So, and I tell you, people lasted six hours. <laughs> before there was total revolt. Hmm? I mean, we may not always be enthusiastic about the schedule here, but you know what's coming next, don't you? I mean, there, there aren't any surprises. And we kind of like that, you know? We like certainty. We like, we like predictability, you know? We don't much like living with the reality of of uncertainty and unpredictability of the world of conditions where our worlds could crumble at any moment that we can't control. We like to be able to predict things. The truth is we are only ever 
episodic fans of impermanence. Even though intellectually we can't argue with it, but we only welcome it when it serves us well. Hmm? The end of the root canal, you know, the difficult neighbor moving away, you know. (laughs) Total advocates of impermanence. But when it comes to what we cherish, you know, what we, what, we, what we are attached to, you know, forget this impermanent stuff, you know. It, it's like we just fall into argument. Years ago here, you know, everything's kind of standardized in the crockery department now, you know, but any of you who came here in the early days, you know, you might remember, you know, the mismatched plates, you know, and the chip mugs and, you know, all that stuff, you know, nothing matched, you know. And, you know, for reasons actually of health, because so much of it was chipped, you know, the organization decided it was going to purchase all new plates and cups. We got a petition. (laughs) We got a petition sent to us from a number of yogis about where is my favorite cup. You know, what have you done? And, you know, how dare you? You know, you didn't consult us. We got a petition. We are in a center that teaches impermanence, isn't it? It's just like, well, you kind of forgot that. We can spend a lifetime building a self or having a sense of self built for us by others. We don't always like the self we have, but the prospect of being no one is rather frightening. I think it was, it was Hugh Hefner. Who, you know who Hugh, Hugh Hefner is. <laughs> Never thought I'd quote Hugh Hefner. And I don't know that. It, was, it was Hugh Hefner who said, I would rather be a flawed somebody than a real nobody. That says a lot about his life, doesn't it? But anyway, we, we know about this. You know, when we come on retreat, I, I think we have a taste of going forth, don't we? We have a taste of homelessness and homecoming. You know, there are many gifts in coming here. There's so many gifts in coming here. You know, you don't have to mow the lawn. You, you, know, you don't have to be in charge. You don't have to be, you know, your responsibilities, quite frankly, are pretty light. You, you don't have to be somebody for others. You know, you're kind of free to be no one, you know. You don't have to prove anything to anyone. You, could, you know, it's such a gift in being able to give up this endless centrality of selfing, you know, that is so exhausting, quite frankly. You, you know, you don't have to do home improvements. You don't have to polish your CV. You really don't have to do much of anything at all. You don't own anything, you know. Nothing here is yours. So there's a lot of freedom in that, isn't there? There's a lot of freedom to listen, a lot of freedom to, to, to be, a lot of freedom to receive. So you have a little taste of homelessness and in coming into retreats. But there could also be a genuine sense of homecoming. You know, for many people who come here, the, the moment they walk through the door, there's a sense of coming home. You know, there, there's a sense of arriving um, into a place of refuge and potentiality, into a place of peace and ethics and safety, community. Think about how you find yourself maybe operating in that taste of homelessness. You'd think we would not only be delighted in the beginning at the relief of it, but that we would continue be, to be delighted. Not so, <laughs> necessarily. Um, we discover how quickly and how easily we transport our desire for home from one geographical location to another. How quickly we want order. Hmm? We, how quickly we want to, to fix things in place. You know? I've got my walking path. My walking path. We don't even know I've got my walking path until somebody else ventures onto it. Hmm? I've got my sitting space. You know, how would you find it if you came in, somebody was sitting on your cushion, or on your chair? Hmm? 
Would you say, welcome, you know? <laughs> be happy, you know? Or would you be going, oh, it's my chair, it's my cushion, you're growling. I, I might even have my seat in the dining room, you know, I've got my yogi job. Um, I've got my parallel schedule that's going to accommodate my habits, you know, so I can get my coffee on time, you know, and my nap in, you know. We may not bring our furniture with us, but and you know it's pretty nice here, really. But it's fairly simple. But you know you might find three days in or so, home improvement ideas start arising. Yeah? It's a pretty nice room, but you know a little painting on the wall, you know, wouldn't go amiss. And we build our house. You know, we build our house. The Buddha speaks about this this process of house building. Seeking safety, seeking comfort, seeking security. The nature of habit is that it asks to be repeated. Much of this, of course, is quite superficial and quite benign, but we also bring the house of self with us, which we often don't even notice until you go to a group meeting. Then you listen to somebody who's having a great time, you know, and you're kind of miserable. Oh, I never can have a great time, you know. Uh, you know, you're comparing, or you're, you're anxious, or you know, you feel you have to entertain, or you feel you have to prove something. None of you do any of this, I, I'm sure. <laughs> Habits have deep roots in anxiety, and self view, and craving, and aversion. That sense of homecoming that we have when we come here, I think it really has a taste. It has a a sweetness. I think it's evocative of peace, of sensitivity, of attunement, of spaciousness that we delight in. And yet, paradoxically, we can feel almost a fatal attraction to the habits of busyness. You know, and rumination and control to the habits of fantasy and planning and obsession. So we carry this paradox of homelessness and home within us, you know, and, you know, thank goodness you handed in your phones. You know, I was speaking with Luis earlier and he seemed a little shocked that I, well, I, I, in theory, I have a cell phone. You know, it gets turned on three times a year. And, and I, I don't do social media. And it's a choice, you know. And, and, and I said to Luis, you know, 50 years of training my mind, and I'm going to insult it by filling it with trivia? Mm-hmm. You might consider. <laughs> yes. When the Buddha got up from the Bodhi tree on the night of his awakening, he didn't refer to some awesome experience he'd had, but to an understanding truly available to, his all, to us all. And he said, in the light of this understanding, there is no longer clinging. There is a cessation of craving. There is no longer clinging to habit or to views of self. And he said, one who clings becomes agitated, and one who is agitated is far from freedom. But that the person who does not cling does not become agitated, and one who is not agitated is close to freedom. This is something useful to check out for ourselves. It's a very present moment practice. Much of the imagery that the Buddha uses about this path is one of the, it's one of the imagery of cooling the fires of agitation. Cooling the fires of agitation. And I might mention that, and, and, and tasting, tasting actually the sublime peace that comes in that cooling. And, you know, we're not short of opportunities, are we, to cool the fires of agitation, the agitations of craving, of aversion, of obsession, to cool the fires of the agitations of of judging and anxiety, and, and instead to take our seat really firmly 
in the classroom of our lives. And the path of cooling the fires of agitation is one that we cultivate in the midst of the habit patterns, not when somehow they are miraculously over. We learn to practice liberating the moment. Liberating the moment from the compulsions of habit and reactivity. It's almost as if we're withdrawing consent, that we're no longer volunteering for suffering. We can write the story of our lives with habit patterns that don't serve us well. Or we can write the story of our lives with understanding and with peace and with freedom. And much of it is linked to this this pause that I spoke about the other night, this pause between stimuli and response, being able to cultivate that space. And in theory, of course, it sounds wonderfully simple and easy, but that space between stimuli and response can feel, feel so small sometimes. And, and, and sometimes we, we, we do feel bewildered, I think, by the persistence of craving and the ongoing reappearance of aversion and clinging and the arising and re-arising of powerful, powerful self-views. And it's good to question, you know, what is the fuel behind that? What is it that keeps that going? Because it's not, not that we wish for it or want it or, you know, love it. What is the fuel that keeps that going? There's a wonderful word in Pali called vipalasa. Vipalasa. Essentially translates as core distortions. Four distortions that generate craving and aversion and clinging and views of self stories. And these distortions are akin, you know, they're quite unconscious mostly. They're akin to wearing a pair of glasses or seeing the world through a, a lens, a clouded lens, and seeing through that the world of, of, in which we see people, events, ourselves. It's kind of like a color blindness. And when we see the world through these distortions, of course, that shapes how we act, how we speak, how we think, the choices that we make, our moods, how we treat and relate to our, our world and ourselves. And these distortions keep generating the hindrances, the craving, the fear, the aversion. And these are self-builders. The fading away of these distortions is the cooling of all agitation and to find a freedom that is unshakable. So, what are these four distortions? Seeing the impermanent to be permanent. Seeing the unsatisfactory to be satisfactory. And in this we could also include seeing the unacceptable as being acceptable. Seeing that which has no independent self-existence as being or having an abiding independent self. And the distortion of seeing the unbeautiful to be beautiful. Now these distortions, which are very core, They lead us to misperceive the world. They lead us to misperceive the information that is coming in through the sense doors. And we do a lot of elaborating on the basis of those misperceptions that create views. I'll give you some examples of this in a minute. And those, those, that creating of, of views in turns reinforces the misperceptions and creates more, more thought, more proliferation. The classic example that is used of this is you, you go for a walk in the woods and you mistake a length of rope beside the path to be a snake. Okay? You see a snake. 
And you become obsessed with that misperceptions. You start to think about it. You know, you start to fear it. You start to worry about it. And it, the more you worry about it, the more and more it really looks like a snake, really is a snake, you know. And you could be presented with views to the contrary or evidence to the contrary. No, I did see a snake in the woods. Hmm? We don't have snakes here. No, there was a snake in the woods. Hmm? And the woods are teeming with snakes. You know, in fact, the world is teeming with snakes. Um, I've had this on retreat sometime that someone would come to me and say, everybody on this retreat's unhappy. They're all depressed. I said, oh. Uh, and I know, I know that I could bring in a line of people who were totally delighted and they would say, no, no, you're just deluded. You are actually really unhappy and you're really depressed. <laughs> and so the view is elaborated upon, you know, that meditation breeds depressed people. Um, some years ago, and it generates a lot of agitation, you know. Some years ago, Narayan and I were teaching somewhere I won't mention, and there was a poor, very much, well, it was kind of a miserable-looking dog, you know. And somebody on the retreat decided the dog was astray and neglected, and they, they took it home. Only for us to find the next day that the caretaker came and says, Has anybody seen my dog? <laughs> it was a difficult moment. Um, uh, And we said, you know, well, why did you take the dog home? They said, well, it's obvious, you know, this dog was just neglected and abused, you know, needs a good home. He said, the dog actually has a good home, you know. And, and, well, to put it frankly, we had to kidnap the dog to bring it back. (laughs) It's a misperception, you know. It's a misperception that generates agitation, generates views, and the views become certainties. They become convictions, you know. You might go to the notice board and see a reminder, you know. It often goes up there, please don't use scented products, you know. And, and you know, you could look at that and through these distortions you could say, oh gosh, that's directed at me, you know. I, I, and we start to obsess it. You know, maybe it's my shampoo, you know, maybe it's my conditioner, maybe it's my soap, maybe it's my clothes, you know. I'm sure it's about me and I'm always getting it wrong, you know, and I don't belong here, you know. And, and I, I, I don't belong in an odorless world, you know. And I, and I, and I don't belong anywhere, you know. And... How did that start? You know, it's very core distortion. Now, I think if we're really interested, actually, in calming the agitations that can govern our lives, it might be helpful for us to actually unpack these core distortions so that we can put them down. Take the first one. Seeing permanence in that which is impermanent. There can be so many numerous small examples of this in a single day, can't they? Uh, we come in and we sit, you know, the mosquitoes sent to plague me. It's not after anybody else, you know. It, it's, it's after me, I, you know, it's waiting for me. And you know, it's going to be here next city and waiting for it. Sometimes it is, actually. Uh, and there's something wrong with me. And there's something wrong with me. I attract them, you know. Or this dullness is going to be here forever, you know. Um, I'm always dull, you know. I'm just a dull person, you know. I should probably just stop coming on retreat, you know, because I, I don't really qualify. You know, I'm really a dull person, you know. An unpleasant thought arises, you know, and, and we're quickly moving in. Oh, this one's here for a long time. You know, this one's here forever, you know. This signals I'm, I'm going to have a depressive relapse. You know, I'm a depressed person. That's who I am. There's no end, you know. This is my future. The words always, the word, words again, the words forever are all indicators of this distortion. And, of course, the biggest distortion of this of all is that I am eternal. Or there is something within me that is eternal. Now, it's not a big step in our imagination to see the way in which these distortions will trigger aversion and craving. The way that these distortions will trigger 
a world building and a self building. I need to have a different experience. I need to become a different kind of person. I need to get rid of the experience I'm having. I don't want to be this kind of person who has these experiences. You know, I want to be the kind of person who has other experiences. It can happen so quickly. And it shapes our lives. But it's not a life sentence. Because we learn to practice in the small moments of distortion, the small moments when we start seeing the impermanent as being permanent. It may bring a lot more patience into our lives. It may help us to question our views. It may help us to actually begin to notice in our lives and in our practice the fading away of all things. It may help us to see the fading away of agitation and contractedness, to allow more spaciousness, more curiosity, to to step out of the agitations of craving and aversion, to be still, to be patient, so that all things can change. There's There's a wonderful story of Aiken Roshi teaching a retreat many years ago and, and he came in to, to give the, the instructions. I think it was on the second or third morning. You, you know they can be difficult days, can't they? That second day can be a pretty hard day, you know, when you get the multiple hindrance attacks. You know? <laughs> it, it can be a pretty hard day. And Aiken Roshi came in and he said that he started by talking by saying, the difficulties you are experiencing now and he said, you could see everybody's perking up. You know, they're going to wait for, you know, some promise, you know, or some reassurance or some magical solution. And he says, the difficulties you are experiencing now are going to be with you for the rest of your life. <laughs> and it was said to be wonderful because it really just challenged the fact that that is actually what people were thinking. You know? That was people were thinking, this is how it's going to be for the rest of my life. Look at a little bit of a look at the second distortion to see the unsatisfactory as being satisfactory or happiness yielding. Now the unsatisfactory doesn't mean that things are bad or wrong. You know, there's there's so much in the world that is lovely and that gladdens our hearts and is to be tasted and appreciated. Yet to hold the view that we can find lasting refuge or lasting happiness and security in a world of conditions that is unstable and constantly changing is essentially to volunteer for a life of wanting and repeated moments of distress and disappointment. Enduring joy, enduring happiness and refuge in the Buddhist teaching, is found within the wisdom of our own hearts, is born of a well-trained mind. To hold the view that greed and hatred are satisfactory, acceptable, is to participate in the sorrows of the world and the scarring of our planet. It's to participate in the abuse of others, to hold the views that ill will is somehow satisfactory, is essentially to bow to the consequences of ill will in all of the forms of abuse and violence and prejudice and racism that we see, all the pain that is born. There is much in life from the perspective of the Buddhist teaching, that is actually quite unacceptable. And wisdom and compassion teach us to say no to the unacceptable. In less dramatic ways, to feel that the mind, ensnared in dissociation or fantasy or numbness, is something that we can live with, is a view of the uns- seeing the unsatisfactory to be satisfactory. Hmm? So the Buddha's standard here is actually quite high. Hmm? 
to look at what we find to be acceptable within our own mind or to be satisfactory within our own hearts that may in reality just be a symptom of resignation or despair. And to actually learn to see the, the unacceptable to be unacceptable, not with rage, not with fear, but with commitment to change that which is unacceptable. This prof- I think this path asks profound question of, questions of ourselves, and they're rather timeless questions. The Buddha, questions the Buddha raised about where do we really, really understand the source of true joy and happiness to lie? What does it really mean to release our hearts from the compulsions of ill will and craving? What does, it, what does a heart imbued with kindness and with compassion actually look like? What does a deeply ethical life look like? And what does freedom mean to us? And the Buddha speaks about growing into freedom and growing into wakefulness. And he often speaks very much about a a gradual path. Growing into wakefulness. Um, And where our practice really is bringing about the end of distress. And You know, that growing into wakefulness begins right where we are, looking at the moments where we seek to abandon what is and flee into dissociation or indifference or numbness, being careful with our words and our thoughts and our acts, really looking at what are we practicing, knowing that we're in every moment we're practicing something. Are we practicing a heart that embraces change, instability, uncertainty? Or are we practicing a heart that is intent on divorcing ourselves from and abandoning? Where do we find ourselves most free and at peace in our lives? In the moments where we're truly attuned and aligned with the way things are? Or in the moments where we find ourselves arguing with the unarguables? The third distortion is perceiving that which has no independent self-existence as having an independent self-existence. The Buddha didn't teach no self. He taught there is no, no thingness. There is no thing that has an independent self-existence. But we keep perceiving independent self-existence. You know, we perceive self inwardly, and we perceive self in in, uh, multiple selves outwardly. So it's not that we just perceive self here. We perceive multiple selves in all things. It's not just about in people. You know, we see the bell as having a self, an independent self-existence. You know, the cushion, you know, the light, the, the flower, the tree. We perceive self as a noun rather than as a verb, as a thing rather than as a process. Do you know where we begin to perceive self in all things? It's when we invest Vedana to be implicit in this. When I see Vedana as being implicit in this bell, I have a ground for craving and aversion. If I do not see Vedana as being implicit in this bell, I have absolutely no ground for craving or aversion to arise. So it is actually by perceiving self in all things, inwardly and outwardly, that we are, and, and perceiving Vedana as being implicit in all things, inwardly and outwardly, that we are actually providing the ground for craving and aversion, agitation to arise. And this gets us into all kinds of trouble. We write the story of self through seizing upon fragments of experience. You know, we seize upon a moment of sadness, you know, or an unpleasant thought, or a sensation in our body. We create a self, we write the story of self through seizing upon fragments of experience, and that story becomes a view, and it becomes a truth. I am happy, I am sad, 
I am flawed. I am fearful. And the story that is written inwardly becomes the story of our lives that we can feel imprisoned within, comparing ourselves with other selves that we have equally defined by seizing upon fragments of their being. I'm better than you. I'm worse than you. We're equally confused. And we create self in all things really by how we perceive them as having the power to displease us or please us, make us happy or unhappy. The flower has intrinsic beauty. It makes me happy. You know, the garbage truck is intrinsically unpleasant, holds the power to make me unhappy. We have volunteered to be a hostage of the world of conditions simply through how we have made Vedana implicit and upon the basis of that Vedana, craving an aversion that actually then intensifies into a self. Again, it's not a life sentence. The Buddha invited us to ask the questions, to offer ourselves the suggestions when we see that contracting happening, that clenching happening, to actually suggest to ourselves, actually, this is not me. This does not belong to me. This is not who I am. Not my thoughts, not my moods, not my body. This is not in the service of annihilating ourselves, but beginning to soften the clenching, beginning to soften the contractedness that is born of these distortions, releasing us into a world where clinging ceases and where we can be the the fluid, responsive, creative, wakeful human beings that we actually have the potential to be. And we, we learn to pick up the clues of clinging, the, you know, the clues of that clenching in our hearts and our bodies. And what is it like to pause in the midst of that contractedness and to feel our feet touch the ground, to know the possibility of cultivating spaciousness, the possibility of cultivating stillness, cooling the agitation, which is the nature of clinging. But clinging is, clenching is also a process. You know, clinging is an intensification of craving and aversion. That's all, you know. And selfing is an intensification of, of, of clinging. You know, there's a continuum here. Craving and aversion intensifies, becomes clenching, Clenching intensifies, <coughs> becomes selfing. In every moment, there's a possibility with mindfulness and investigation <coughs> Sorry, to step out of that contractedness, to learn how to unclench. You know what it's like if you put a sharp stone in your hand, in an open hand. It really doesn't hurt at all. If you close your hand around it, it becomes really painful. And what we're really learning to do in the practice is just to keep opening that hand, opening that hand. It's so important that we have confidence in our capacity to do this. The last of these distortions, in case you hadn't had enough, was perceiving the unbeautiful to be beautiful. It's a strange one, isn't it? It's a very core distortion, very core misperception. Think of extreme examples thinking pornography or, you know, images of child abuse to be beautiful. That's a very extreme example. I used to live in a town that was choked on the pollution from a pulp mill. And people who lived there and worked there would say, that's the smell of money. Receiving the unbeautiful to be beautiful. Glorifying size zero models you know, applauding being identified with divisive political ideologies, making us something, you know. Valuing ourselves and others by what we produce rather than who we are. Obsessed with, with physical appearance or, or aligning ourselves with models of superiority or views that are based on, uh, you know, ethnicity or sex or gender. Values of... Valuing distractedness and pleasure and comfort 
seen that to be beautiful when it's really not so beautiful. Hmm? Valuing that over resilience and confidence and clarity. Sometimes I think this last distortion really speaks to some of our deepest values, our deepest fears that can guide our lives. Values that can be rooted in fear and confusion and likely to be known by the suffering they bring. Or values that can be deeply rooted in ethics and understanding and compassion, likely to be known by the sense of their freedom they bring. I think we look beneath these waves of craving, aversion, contractedness, not with judgment, but with, with an affectionate curiosity, really knowing how we can wake up from these misperceptions, these distortions, and really step into a landscape that feels alive and fearless and compassionate and wakeful. And I'd like to end with a quote that I started with. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It's a place of no-thingness, of non-possession, and of non-clinging. It is the total end of death and decay, and this is why I call it Nirvana. Take a moment just to sit quietly together. Thank you for your attention. Uh, we have a walk-in period now and then come back a quarter to nine for the last group set.